Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Lockdowns have been the blunt force instrument used to contain the coronavirus. And a study just last week from UCSF concludes that early on in the pandemic, shutdowns did work, but not for all populations. In particular, the study notes that blacks, Latinos, and those without a high school degree experienced a higher number of deaths per capita, even with a lockdown in place. We're going to talk about the study and what it means for crafting future policy responses to address the disparities experienced by high-risk communities. And we're going to also get the latest on the virus response here in the Bay Area, including how an inflatable holiday costume may have caused an outbreak at San Jose Kaiser Hospital. Uh, We're going to be joined uh, by Professor Kristen uh, Bobbins-Domingo, and I believe she's with us. Yes, I am. Oh, yeah. Good to have you back with us. Welcome to the program. And I should say uh, you're a professor epidemiologist at UCSF. And glad to have you back with us. Uh, I want to talk about this study that was out of uh, UCSF, but also uh, there were similar results that came out in an article in JAMA in the Journal of the American Medical Association that lockdowns early on seemed to work uh, in terms of numbers of deaths, but not in these populations of blacks and Latinos, and particularly those without a high school degree, death per capita, and those uh, during the lockdown was considerably higher. And that's, of course, quite disturbing, but that's what we're dealing with, those disparities. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a a number of studies have now shown um, that uh, lockdowns um, are something, an important tool that we need to be able to deploy when case numbers are going up very high. Uh, They help us to prevent the high viral transmission that leads uh, to these excess uh, cases and deaths. What we were interested in doing is to ask whether in California, if you compare this year to the expected number of deaths that we've had in prior years, how many excess deaths have we had since March over the first six months of the pandemic? And what we find is that um, that about uh, 20,000 more Californians died than we would have expected compared to prior years that there's this pattern that suggests that our early lockdown really did turn the tide in terms of those excess deaths, 
But as you note, that benefit wasn't experienced equally um, amongst all Californians. And what's disturbing about this is that um, when you compare to other large cities with either black or Latino populations, uh, the San Francisco numbers are, for the most part, much worse. I mean, you're five times more likely for a Latino to get COVID here in San Francisco than you are in just about any other major city. And I think it's only Denver that is worse. Yeah, I think those numbers were reported by Mission Local and, and I think um, really speak to, uh, uh, to, to the issue. So there, um, we used to say that the virus is, you know, the great equalizer and pandemics are the great equalizer, but they are most certainly not. And what we saw here is that um, that Latinos not only did um, did uh, Black Californians and Latino Californians have higher deaths, the highest per capita deaths um, uh, during the first six months of the pandemic, but Latinos never saw a decline in mortality after the lockdown. Every other group had this drop off in deaths. Um, that occurred and coincided with the period of the lockdown, suggesting there was benefit. But amongst the Latinos, we didn't see that decline. And we also didn't see that decline amongst people who have um, at most a high school education. And it really suggests that there are these stark inequities and that while we have certain policy tools that we're able to put in place to help during a pandemic, it is not helping everyone. And we really need to focus an attention on uh, the groups that are disproportionately affected. And I want to talk with you about where that attention ought to be. We're talking again with Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, who is professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. When we talk about San Francisco, of course, we're talking about the Mission, the Bayview, and the Tenderloin largely, and underinvestment in those communities. Uh, they're the most vulnerable. I think it was Arnold Perkins, who's a former head of Alameda County Health, who said it's this is a war and the poor are on the front lines and the rich are in the back. And uh, the reality is uh, what the CDC said quite a while ago, when you think of income, ethnicity, living situation, uh, determines great determiners of social vulnerability, but also of uh, not having the kind of uh, medical coverage or the kind of medical. There, there's also the problem, isn't there, about density of housing? A lot of these folks that we're talking about are just living in congested housing or work in occupations that particularly put them in the front lines as essential workers? Yeah, that's exactly right. So really important whenever we see these, uh, these stark differences across groups, yeah, um, people oftentimes think, well, may, is there something biological? Is there something that is making these groups more susceptible to the virus? It turns out this is all really social. This is about what we call the social factors that determine health, the social drivers of health. And we see a, a certain pattern that's played out across the country in many uh, groups that have been disproportionately affected. We see it in the Bay Area um, amongst our Black and Latino populations. And, um, and I think that the pattern um, starts oftentimes with frontline essential work. So lockdowns work if you actually are able to stay at home and work from home, like many of us have the luxury to do. Those people who are not able to do that um, are still out there working and exposed to the virus. 
It is our uh, low wage frontline workers that I would call out specifically here. Those are oftentimes people working in environments where they don't have the types of workplace protections to make sure that we can reduce the transmission. And a lot has been written now about grocery store workers um, and, and other types of restaurant workers. These same uh, poor communities oftentimes then live in our, um, in our Bay Area where affordable housing is, is an additional crisis that we have here, live in more densely populated um, environments. So if exposure happens at work, um, exposure to the rest of the family happens very quickly because of more densely populated living situations. These are oftentimes the same communities that don't have the additional resources to take time off of work when they feel sick, or to, um, to, to move to different types of environments to protect family members if one member of the family is sick. And then when you add into that, um, uh, a challenge that we've had throughout the pandemic is getting enough testing to the communities where there's highest transmission and ensuring that people uh, feel uh, they have access to the medical care if they need to seek medical care all of these, these uh, forces are acting in exactly the same communities, and that's what really um, amplifies and elevates uh, the risk of infection, but importantly, the risk of death in these communities. Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned just the inadequacy of testing and occupational exposure uh, is part of that, but we will continue when we were talking again with Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo. If you'd like to join us, we invite you to do that. You can call us now at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Please feel free to join us with your questions and comments at 866-733-6786 or on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Dr. Kirsten Domingo, uh, Bibbins Domingo, excuse me, who's professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and professor of medicine at UCSF. And if you have questions, please feel free to join us now, toll free at 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls is 866-733-6786, or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you might have to Forum at kqed.org. We're talking particularly about the concerns of high mortality rates among ethnic populations, specifically among black and Latino populations, and certainly living situations have a lot to do with that, but also congested housing, as we said earlier, inequality uh, on so many levels, which suggests the need, of course, for paid leave policies, for better housing, for more PPE, and for more accessible testing. All of those things come under an umbrella of necessity, and all those are imperative in different ways. I want to ask you, though, Dr. Bimmons Domingo, about a study out of Stanford that suggests that maybe the infection rates could go down 
if there's more of a, uh, of a kind of indoor capacity uh, ceiling, uh, they're talking about, in other words, the value, uh, and some of this comes from early pandemic uh, data, and I, I'm be interested in hearing your thoughts about using that data, but they say that about 20, there's about a 20% uh, sweet spot for indoor capacity could prevent about over 85% of infections. Um, in other words, the idea here is that if you, instead of a citywide shutdown uh, or a stay-at-home order, you'd have these strictly uh, strict density caps and other measures that could limit infections and keep the economy breathing. What do you think about that study, or what's your thought? Thoughts about it? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me say that although you know our, our data suggests that that the lockdowns had their effect, nobody wants lockdowns to work forever. They're not intended to be a tool to, that we put in place and just keep in place. Um, and we absolutely need to have strategies to be able to open up um, our economies safely. And I think the study out of Stanford suggesting that strict density limits um, actually could could allow us to open many more businesses. I believe it's that same study, though, that suggests that in some neighborhoods where there is more uh, dense environments, that the grocery stores in those areas actually have the most challenge with the density. So, um, so it is we a constant theme throughout this pandemic is that we need to aggressively look at how to be able to open up our economies. But we also need to understand that not every community within our city, within the Bay Area, experiences the pandemic in the same way. And we have to find the ways to make sure that we offer the types of protections and enforcement and resources in the communities that have been disproportionately affected. For me, it's important because this is not just an equity issue. This is an issue just of pragmatic pandemic management. We cannot open up the economy and say more people can go to work when we haven't in fact suppressed the virus in the very communities that are overrepresented among our low wage essential workers. So it is essential that we, not just because of our social and moral and ethical responsibilities, but just pragmatically need to make sure that when we drive down the viral transmission, we're driving it down in all communities and particularly the ones that have been disproportionately affected. Yeah, well said. And uh, one of our listeners, Beth writes, Latinos, Blacks and the poor also die in higher numbers from the flu and various preventable issues. JAMA notes, Many health issues that are related to lack of accessible, affordable, healthy foods like fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains. Let me bring John on as our first caller here. John, welcome to the program. You're on. Thank you very much for having me. I have two, uh, two things. One is a quick comment and the other is a question. The comment is there is a study, and I think it was published in The Atlantic, that suggests that urban density is actually not a risk factor for higher transmission, that the bigger risks are actually in in rural areas that lack social infrastructure, whereas cities we have much better social infrastructure. Of course, it varies by neighborhood. I don't mean to dismiss that, but I think the density may be overhyped. Um, also, I have a quick question, which is, could you please comment on the opinion piece in the Washington Post by Dr. Wachter, I think his name is pronounced, who is the chair of medicine at UCSF, recommending the single-dose with a delayed second dose, as they are doing in the UK. Yeah, it's Bob Wachter and uh, uh, Professor. Yes. 
Happy to answer both of those questions. So a really good comment. So, um, so you are absolutely right. Density itself is not a factor. So if we think of density of how many units of housing we have in a particular geographic area, that itself is not a risk factor. You're exactly right. What is a risk factor is more dense living within a unit. So the more number of people who are packed within, within a particular um, apartment, uh, that is, in fact, what the risk factor is. And so there are many strategies within urban settings um, that, uh, and in urban settings, we have to be able to figure out how to accommodate uh, people living within urban settings. And it's the, the strategy, the, the challenge is to figure out how to do that without having overcrowding within an apartment unit. You are also exactly correct that ultimately this is a, a lack of, um, of uh, social resources within communities. Those can be rural communities that have their own sets of challenges and in urban communities. But really it is uh, an issue of, of uh, poverty and the lack of ability for the resources within either of these environments to effectively address the needs uh, that these communities face during a pandemic. The second I'm yeah, sorry. sorry, go ahead. No, you had something else you wanted to add, please. <laughs> well, I wanted to comment on, on uh, uh, my, my colleague uh, Bob Walker's um, article with uh, Ashish Jha in, um, in the Washington Post. Um, there has been a lot of concern that, um, that the vaccines that we have, highly efficacious vac vaccines, are not being rolled out fast enough. And they certainly are not being rolled out fast enough. We're in the midst of a surge. It is urgent that we get uh, people um, vac uh, vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can. And that's particularly important now that we have this, this additional concern about this variant that seems to be more transmissible. Um, against that backdrop, um, there, there have been these discussions um, uh, that, uh, that uh, um, Dr. Walker uh, proposed uh, that we actually shift from two doses to a single dose and there is um, some um, reading of the trial data that suggests a single dose could provide enough immunity, and uh, this might be a way to effectively vaccinate more people. I think many of these policy and scientific discussions are well worth having because of the urgency of the situation. The Could I ask you, since you're talking about single yes. doses, about the status of uh, Johnson & Johnson, which we don't hear a lot about as a vaccine? Yeah, I think we're we're waiting for trial results, and and so that's um, and the, everyone is is really quite interested in the Johnson and Johnson um, uh, vac vaccine because it is a study a, a vaccine that was designed as a single dose and therefore uh, might be an important uh, an, an important and more easily administered uh, vaccine, but we still don't have the trial results. I think the concern I have about the discussions, and I'm all in favor of the discussions about how we do this more quickly, is that um, one, it doesn't solve the fundamental problem, which is about implementation. We have a fundamental implementation problem of how do we effectively get all the vaccines that landed here in California into the arms of all the people that are intended. We have that problem right now, whether we do it single dose or double dose, and that's not actually changed by the fact that we might go to a single dose strategy. The second is I worry about our communication challenge. We know that there's already been vaccine hesitancy. There have been people who've refused the vaccines because of concerns about um, scientific concerns, efficacy concerns, safety concerns. And when we shift our course midstreams, I don't think that we help 
the issues of communicating to a public that is oftentimes mistrustful because of the many ways in which the vaccines have been politicized over the course of this pandemic. So I think it's important we have discussions about how to do this well, but we also have to um, just acknowledge the fact that, that the very uh, the very clear issues of implementation, the logistical issues, are probably the main thing we have to focus on at this time. And our guest again is Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF, where she's professor of medicine. Elizabeth wants to know, could you talk about what workspace practices should be put in place to keep workers safer? We all see stores that ignore density quotients or people wearing masks improperly. Are there rules that employers should be required to put in place? Yeah, that's a, it's a really great question. I think one of the things that we have seen is that throughout the, the pandemic, the, California has probably been uh, a le leaned a little bit more strongly on education and a little less strongly on enforcement of health orders in the workplace. That it, it puts it in contrast with other states. Uh, Kaiser Health News wrote about this. Um, I think we do need to see more enforcement at the workplace. And I think that it is, it's pretty clear that the workers we're talking about, low wage workers um, who, uh, who need the jobs that they have are going to be least able to be in a position to enforce a health order. This is the responsibility of the employer to enforce. And, um, and, uh, and it is the responsibility of uh, local and state governments um, to ensure that employers are enforcing the health orders that we put in place. Um, that includes the density issues that you raised earlier. It includes making PPE available. It includes making sure that employees are not fearful of, um, of, uh, of finding out whether they are, um, they are positive for a coronavirus. And um, would also include then that we have the types of resources available in terms of sick leave uh, for people to be able to take time off of work. In San Francisco, we have the right to recover funds, which have been really important and helpful for our, our low wage uh, workers. Um, those are the types of policies that we have to have in place. I think from a statewide level, and a, a, really it's the enforcement issues to ensure that, um, that employers are doing everything that they can to keep their employees safe. And I wanted to mention that there was a, a study uh, that essentially focused on the Latino population and said that there was more impact on those who work in food and agriculture and manufacturing. I think that's significant. Let me bring a, another caller on. It's Eileen, who's a nurse in a large hospital in Folsom. And Eileen, join us. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm calling from the Sacramento area, and I'm on my way home from work, actually. And um, I wanted to make a comment about the population that we are seeing that um, are, have COVID and are getting very ill. Um, they generally tend to be male. There doesn't seem to be a large proportion of African-American or Hispanic. Um, more, we're seeing a large um, proportion of um, um, like Eastern European, uh, Russian, Ukrainian, that sort of thing. I don't know if that's just because of where, I, where we are, and I wondered if you could comment on that. And the other thing is, is that I'm, we talked about, at work about some studies that was out about um, they're finding some relation to the genes, to your genes, and if you have certain genes, you won't get COVID, and others, the whole family will get it. And we are seeing 
patients who come in where mom, dad, brothers, sisters have it, but somebody who's a sister-in-law doesn't get it. Well, thank you for that call, Eileen. I don't know exactly where Eileen is near Sacramento, but certainly you mentioned before, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, uh, the article that appeared in Mission Local, and the mission here in San Francisco is right at the epicenter of the pandemic and certainly affects uh, the Latino and black populations more than any other. It's dependent to a great extent on where you are, but we're talking about state figures. I mean, see this as an epidemiologist from the state perspective, don't you? Yeah, I, I think that's right. So I. I think, um, you know, we are a very large state, a large, diverse state. And so um, the and and we have a virus that is capable of infecting anyone and everyone. So it, I, I don't I'm not surprised that there will be um, regional differences, that there will be local differences in uh, the, the communities that um, that in a particular areas appear uh, to be disproportionately affected. Um, I think that um, that one of the things that was striking in the work that we did is that two thirds of the excess deaths, two thirds of the excess deaths occurred in people who had less, uh, who had a high school education or less, um, regardless of race ethnicity. That really is is a number that encompasses any group and and speaks to the big class differences. Um, I think that that are putting uh, some at risk. Um, I don't know if that applies to uh, the population that you're talking about in, in the region that we're talking about here. We also know that there are many racial and ethnic and, and immigrant groups um, that have smaller numbers, and it's hard to see the excess deaths when you look at the aggregate numbers that the state reports. And so sometimes we don't know about specific uh, specific groups. Uh, an example would be Pacific Islanders, which uh, appear to have a higher risk, but are often aggregated with, with Asian, um, and, and it's oftentimes difficult to, to tease out the exact numbers and the excess risks in, in those populations. So I think it is important to understand this as a very hyper-local phenomenon and to understand the vulnerabilities within your local community and to really think about what we can do uh, to, to reinforce and, and to, to make sure that all of our communities are affected. But the I caller also not uh, a lot of evidence that genetics plays a role here. Yeah, I was just going to say the caller also mentioned been. genetics, and I and I was struck by that because I remember an article uh, in the editorial section of the New York Times by four uh, African American professors of medicine and uh, from places like Morehouse, uh, all black colleges, and they were saying that there needs to be a lot more research in terms of how COVID affects uh, particularly African Americans, black people. Well, we, we need more research. We have a new virus that um, that we are uh, scientists are doing everything that they can to figure out uh, how it uh, what are the characteristics of the virus and what are the characteristics of the many ways in which it, it really uh, wreaks havoc on, on the human body. I think the evidence to date doesn't suggest that the disproportionate burden we're seeing in some communities is because of genetics. That's been clear in study after study. That's not to say that we won't continue to find ways in which um, the virus has slight advantages in some it, it, because of uh, coexistence of some things. But it's pretty clear from the studies we have right now that genetics is not the driver of the disproportionate impact that we're seeing in the communities. We're no, talking. but I think these professors of medicine were saying it has different impact uh, on genetics. Uh, yes. Well, um, I think people have written about uh, survival in the hospital if you get into the hospital. And there they also find 
that race doesn't, if you make it to the hospital, that race isn't a driver of your survival, of who survives in the hospital. So again, again, argues that genetics isn't the primary factor. Now, we do know that there are other conditions, um, hypertension, obesity, that, that uh, really make management of very severe COVID disease more challenging. Um, but but it's pretty striking how across New York City um, and other areas of the country, how, how uh, the, the pretty clear story is that this is a story about being more likely to get the virus. Um, and that's what's explaining the disproportionate burdens. Um, all the studies to understand what the virus does once it gets in your body, um, I, I think we're, we're still learning all of those things. But it doesn't seem to be the main explanation for why we see the disproportionate uh, numbers of cases and deaths in our, our minority communities. I'm going to read a tweet from a listener named Norm before we conclude here. He writes, it has been known for months that Latinos and Blacks are especially vulnerable to the pandemic. Resources should have been focused in these communities long ago, such as concentrated testing and education, yet no government, whether federal, state, or local, has done so. And I believe we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Kristen Bibbins Domingo, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to have you on Forum. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, who is, again, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and professor of medicine at UCSF. And we're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, another hour of forum with Mina Kim is up ahead. I always remind you that you can let us know what you think about what you hear on forum or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And for all of us here at forum and from KQED Public Radio, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.